0: Good morning, my brothers and sisters. I have so much looked forward to being here on the Asbury campus. I have heard so much about the school and what God has done here, and uh, I am so grateful uh, to President Tennant, to uh, Dr. Sims, to Dr. Geertsen, to Reverend Legron, and to all of you who are involved in having me have the privilege to come back closer to my home. I grew up in West Virginia. Uh, out of uh, Southern California to be able to be here with you. Now, I have three chances to speak to you about preach it, lead it. So what I wanted to do uh, in this first uh, message is to sort of pull that, you know, that proverbial helicopter up uh, to think about the mission that our Heavenly Father is actually engaging in in this world. Because if we're going to lead something as his followers, we might as well lead in the direction that he is leading. If we're going to have a vision for the direction we're supposed to go, it, it should be his vision. Now, I imagine just with the kind of people who are here, you have a good idea about what God's uh, mission is. But I, got, I have some good news for you. God is making everything new in his creation. Uh, this world that our father created, we're told in Genesis 1, it, it's, it's very, very good he recognized that by Genesis 3, it was no longer very, very good, but that this, this entire world is infected and affected by sin. There are other kingdoms operating in this world other than his own, but our Father loves the world that he made. In particular, he loves people created in his very image, and that includes you and me today. And I'll tell you, he is engaged in a mission to redeem and to restore what was lost when sin entered this world. Uh, The good news of the Bible is that uh, God has promised he's going to make everything new, and that means everything right and everything just, that includes the people. And what he started, he will finish. Everything that is will someday reveal the glory of all that its creator is. Now, the centerpiece of this good news, as Paul says in in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is that he came personally into this world in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he lived the life that every one of us should be living, but none of us has. And then was willing to die the death that every one of us deserves, but now we don't have to experience it because he did it in our place. Hallelujah. And that all who place their faith in him have this hope of being completely remade. Jesus came into this world to bring a different kind of kingdom. It is the kingdom of God, a kingdom of peace and justice. Now, I thought, how do I illustrate this to you? Our Southern Californians like the sea stuff. So don't put up, if we have the picture, don't put it up yet. Uh, One of the um, movements in the world of art that I really appreciate over the last two decades or so is called reclamation art. Uh, Reclamation artists like to step into damaged, polluted parts uh, of this world and envision something beautiful coming out of them. Um, One of the most interesting reclamation art projects comes from not so far from my home. It comes from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania from a while ago. Uh, There are um, three artists at Carnegie Mellon University saw what had happened to one part one of what was once one of the most beautiful parts of Pittsburgh, the nine-mile run area, but it had become the dump site for all the slag from the steel mills in Pittsburgh so that eventually the river that ran through it was so polluted it was hardly running. Well, here's the picture. I want to show you what it began to look like. Do we have that pic- picture? Can you, can you see that? It's not all that beautiful. Now, they saw; these artists saw what it could become, and, and, and to reclaim the beauty of that site, they put together a team of botanists and engineers and landscape architectures and so forth to collaborate together in this artistic project. They refused to treat that, that slag-infested place as being so damaged that it just had to be destroyed and, and put into waste. Instead, they wanted to reclaim the beauty. They saw what was still good that was there. They found 144 species of life. They saw how they were related to other things. They saw how the soil could be reclaimed. I just want to show you a picture of how one part of it now looks. It, I love that response. I need to have you in my, 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 my church. I just want to tell you, my brothers and sisters, this is an example of what God is doing in you. This is an example of what God wants to do in the lives of every human being who sits under your ministry. This is an example of what our Father is doing in this world. God does not view what he has made as trash to be discarded, but something to be redeemed and restored. Now let me just tell you this. What God started through the sending of his Son into this world, he is going to bring to completion. Someday, all things will be made new. Revelation 21 and 22, and that includes you and me. Thank you, Lord. So that brings me to the topic I want to talk to you about this week. Uh, Preach it, lead it. Again, when we talk about leading as followers of Jesus, we're always going to be leaders under somebody else, right? You, You know that. And the mission that we are engaged in is never our own, The vision that we should be building is never my or your vision. It's always his. And so the the fundamental question we should always ask is, Lord, what role would you give me the privilege of playing in what you're doing in this world? Same question President Tenet always asks. What role would you have this place, this school to play in what you are doing in this world? So as I thought about this conference, I put one lead question I want to put in front of you. How should we use our God-given resources, positions of authority, other opportunities, including preaching, for influence in ways that further God's mission in this world? Now, I've used the word influence rather than leadership here because I find that will apply to every human being. No matter what role you are in, you have an influence. You know, it's not just the parents that influence the families, the children too, right? Right? It's not just the administration or faculty that influences the school, it's all the students and staff who are there as well. And believe me when I tell you, when you step into a pulpit to preach, there is influence, there is power, there is authority in that privilege that God gives us. I've become increasingly convinced that when we think about a topic like we're thinking about this week, that God calls us not to think so much about a life of leadership. a life of service. And when we have places of leadership and power and authority, the question is, how do we steward that gift from God in a way that serves his mission and the people Jesus came to rescue? So here's what I want to do. In my three messages to you, I want to show you how Jesus used his authority. We're going to see it in the Gospel of Mark. It's clear, clear to me when I see what Jesus did it was so much different from what I see in today's uh, leadership books and, and manuals. Uh, you already heard it as Sam read it for us so well. Jesus would declare, even the Son of Man did not come into this world to be served, but to serve and even to give his life. So the way I put it is this. The way that God looks at this world is different from the way that we usually look at it. Um, in the way that God looks in this world, there, there is a paradoxical topography in the kingdom of God. In God's eyes, the way up is down. Now, I, don't want, I want to show you this from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I did my dissertation there. We're, roll up your sleeves. I, I want to give you the whole framework for the Gospel of Mark and then actually say something to you about preaching from it. Can we do it? I don't know. <laughs> we'll just try it. Okay, Gospel of Mark, it starts with the title in verse 1, and then we have three parts of the narrative. Uh, Verse 1 is the title. Here's what it says. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. If you've never read a Bible before, you already know two things about Jesus, don't you? He is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. Then, when you come to the first section of Mark, it runs from chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 8, verse 21. For eight and a half chapters, it goes on to tell us that that's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus reveals his identity. And he does it through doing miracles that make everyone stand in awe. Wow, they would say. He did it by teaching in a way that when people heard him teaching, they said, there's nobody that teaches like that. In other words, when you would see what he did, when you hear how he taught, he did only the things that God can do. Everyone should have seen it if they knew anything about the scriptures, that this was the Messiah and the Son of God. But I'll tell you, by the time you come to the end of the first section, and it ends with chapter 8, verse 21, even those closest to Jesus had no idea who he was. It ends with this cryptic question from Jesus. Do you still not understand they didn't. They were as dense as rocks. I'm, I'm just telling you here, right now. Now, I'm going to take us all the way down to the last section because it's the middle where I want us to camp out. The last section begins with chapter 11, verse 1, and it ends uh, there in chapter 16. Jesus enters into, the, into Jerusalem, the place of his destiny, and the place where he is going to fulfill his mission, and he gives his life. Now, the middle section, in which, which I call Jesus served and called followers, to a life of service. It begins with chapter 8, verse 22, and it runs through chapter 10, verse 52. It's often called the discipleship section of Mark. Uh, discipleship is to follow your leader in such a way that your life gets shaped to become like that leader. So we see where Jesus is going, and, and the way it's put together is so beautiful. It begins with the healing of a blind man from chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. It ends with the healing of another blind man in chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Uh, I think those things really happened. At the same time, it is painting a powerful picture for us. Those who are blind to who Jesus is need to have our eyes opened through Jesus himself. That's what's going on here. And so Jesus, this one who's already shown his authority, that he is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah, begins a journey. And that journey goes from the northern part of of his country, from Galilee, and goes relentlessly uh, toward Jerusalem, where he's going to fulfill his mission. And uh, you perhaps even heard Sam use the phrase, seven times it says, he's on the road, he's on the road, and on the road. As he was journeying, calling people to follow him, he was proclaiming why he had come. And the one thing I want you to see here is three times in these chapters, he gives his mission statement and really lets us know why he was here in this world. You can remember it so easily. It's, one is in chapter 8, one is in chapter 9, one is in chapter 10. Each time you can kind of look around, verse 30, and you can find these statements. Three times he does it. The first time is in chapter 8, verse 31 to 33. Jesus had asked, who do people think I am? Peter, you know, came and said, I I think you're the Christ. And right after that, Jesus then says, if you see that, if you believe that, he began to teach about his soon-to-come suffering, rejection, and death. However, even though... Peter could see enough to think that Jesus might be the Messiah. He could not understand that a Messiah was going to suffer and die because he like all of his people thought that the Messiah would come and be victorious and get rid of these awful Romans who were keeping them under oppression. There's no a suffering Messiah there's ever been an oxymoron, the Messiah's not going to suffer. He's going to triumph. So J- Peter comes and rebukes the very person that he had just called the Messiah. So Jesus rebukes him back. Even stronger. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking the way God thinks. You're thinking the way that people think, the kingdoms of this world. Well, I, we would have gotten that, right? You wouldn't have. Miss that. They did. Chapter 9, verse 30. For the second time, Jesus taught his followers, listen, here's why I've come, to be betrayed and killed, though most certainly I will rise again. But his disciples would not, perhaps they could not, see it. And so Jesus told them again, this is my future. This is why I have come. But shockingly, you can just read it. Ironically, perhaps shockingly, while Jesus was saying this, the disciples were fighting with one another. I, your leader, the one you're following, I have come to die. They're fighting. What were you fighting about on the way? We were fighting about which one of us was going to be the greatest when you got to Jerusalem and set up your kingdom there. We haven't changed, we, we people. About that, Jesus put a child right there in front of them. said, you've got to become like that little child or you won't even enter the kingdom of God. And then he made this this declaration, in the kingdom of God, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. If anybody's going to be the boss, he must become the slave of all. Because in the paradoxical topography of the kingdom of God, the way up is down. Well, they've got it now, right? Chapter 10. (laughs) This is a text that you read, Sam. A rich young ruler had come to Jesus, and then he was left behind. You know, he walked away. And that really bothered the disciples. You can read about it because he represented everything that they hoped they would become when Jesus got into Jerusalem. And now he is the one who is left behind. So Jesus took the 12 aside and for a third time gave his mission statement. I'll read it all to you now. We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the authorities who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Though after three days, he will rise again. Again, just as shockingly as we've seen before, the very first verses... Tell us how his disciples respond. James and John come running up to him and saying, hey, when you get there to Jerusalem and you accept know, you the kingdom and everything gets to be good again, which one of us will get to be, have one of us be on your right and one of us be on your left? And the other disciples were indignant. Did you notice that? Why were they indignant? I think it's because James and God, John had gotten to him first. Oh, no. The best places we can get are positions three through 12. And and they come to him and says, we want you to do for us what we ask. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. When you really follow me, you're going to have to be ready to experience the baptism I'm going to be baptized with. You have to be willing to die. Are you willing to do it so glibly, they say, we can. And that's where what I call the hammer blow of Christ-centered leadership comes in the Gospel of Mark. If you have tuned out, will you tune in right now? Because whatever role God puts you in, these are the words from our Lord that you must hear. He turns to them and he says, You know that the rulers in this world lord their authority over their people. And that's still true, isn't it? And their high officials exercise clout over them, you know, for their own benefit. Not so With you. Instead, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of God was a Son of man. And by that, he's saying, the one that I've already shown you, I'm the Messiah and the Son of God. All that authority, that position, even the Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, he not only preached it, he did it. He healed a blind man. He goes into Jerusalem where he dies so that you and I can be saved. Hallelujah. We say hallelujah, and yet he calls you and me to that same life. All right. Let me look at that clock. Those things go faster here than in California. <laughs> Out of this, I've developed just some principles about serving. Last night I was sitting down and I thought, what does this look like in preaching? I'll, I'll share it with you. If the time runs out, the pit opens up and I fall in, I know. But here, here it goes. Number one, when I read this, I think that service that Jesus shows us and he calls us to is not a life of weakness but of strength. It's not lording over, but it is leading. Isn't it clear, I hope I made it clear, that, that when uh, Jesus was here, he, he had that clear mission of his father that, that directed his steps. And, and when he preached, he was always calling people to follow him in that direction. Nothing deterred him from that mission. Not the rebuke of Peter, not the upcoming suffering that he knew that was ahead of him. So as I look at this Christ-like service, leadership, using our roles of leadership or preaching to serve, uh, still is leadership, but it's leadership as Jesus led. There are so many implications of this, but I want to think about our preaching. I believe that our preaching can be a central part of what God uses to further his work in our people's lives, in our churches and in the neighborhoods God puts us in. Uh, There is power in preaching. When the word of God goes forth, there is power in it. There's power to call people to personal faith in Jesus. There is power to instruct people in how to live. There is power to correct people when they've walked away from God and into sin. How did Paul put it in 2 Timothy 4? Timothy, you've got to preach the word, and you can use it to rebuke, to correct, to encourage, and to evangelize. At this point, I simply want to tell you that I have found that the careful teaching and preaching of the word is one of the greatest stewardships that God gives to us when he puts us in the kinds of roles that most of us here are in. We can use that place of authority to serve our people so that their lives, still ravaged by sin, can begin to know the renewing power of God through his Holy Spirit. Uh, there is power in the pulpit don't run from it use it to serve god's mission and your people okay second service as jesus did it is never focused on self advancement but always on the kingdom of god the advancement of the kingdom of god it's never for self but always for god I'll tell you one of the most striking aspects of this middle section of mark is chapter 8 verse 31 When Jesus said he must suffer, strong word there, dei is used, divine necessity. The implication of this is that even though Jesus is in very nature God, he was still on this earth to do the will of his Father. And I'm just telling you, when you and I become followers of Jesus, we must do the same, submit our entire lives to God's mission. And our preaching can be used to further God's renewing work in our people. I believe that from the depths of my being in our community and in our world. One aspect of this is that I think when you and I preach, we can remind people, as I sought to do today with you, of what God is actually doing in this world. We can help people to sort of be challenged to know how can the place where God is putting me now in business or even in in the unemployment line... How can God use the influence I have in the relationships I develop actually uh, to serve the mission of God, to bring his healing, to bring his hope? But in our preaching, what has to happen, and it's really hard for me and for us all, is that we have to be willing to give up our own pride. You know, to think if I preach this way, I know people will like it and they'll laugh if I tell that joke and set that to the side and, and, and serve the needs of the people that God has entrusted to our care. I found that in preaching, we can become a voice for those in our churches who don't really feel like they fit and in our neighborhood who go unnoticed and just feel voiceless. Preaching gives you an opportunity to to do that. In preaching, I can tell people of those whom Jesus welcomes into the community because sometimes in our churches, the very people that Jesus so often blessed and welcomed are the people that we don't want to welcome. If you come to the workshop, I'll talk to you a little bit about that. We can tell them every human being can be a new creation in Christ and needs to be able to be welcomed as a brother or sister. When I preach as as this last year happened in, in a world of political polarization, and I come to them and try to remind them of the things that have brought us together and tell them on the basis of God's word that the way that our divided world is going to know that Jesus is the Christ is if his people will love one another and be one so that unity is a necessity and division is not an option. You can use the pulpit to declare that. Third, service is not easy. Can I have a witness? (laughs) But it's good. It's not The convenient way, but it is the right way if right means God's way. This is my way of trying to say to you, don't be surprised if you serve people and you think everybody would love that and they don't seem to love it at all. It it really has been hard. Leadership is a challenging place. Sometimes you think about a servant leader as one who just tries to keep the peace. Who tolerates wrongdoing even in the church because you sort of feel like, you know, if I confronted this issue, this important family would leave. Uh, who does not confront error out of fear that would ruin the harmony in the church. This clearly was not what Jesus did. <laughs> I'll tell you, when Peter, the, the, the lead apostle, comes to him and rebukes him, Jesus didn't say, I better keep quiet here or it's going to mess up the unity of the people who followed me. No, he rebuked right back, knowing... That even though we want to maintain the unity, it has to be on the basis of truth, not on the basis of sin and error. And so that truth must be delivered with absolute love. And I'll tell you, uh, you may not always have wisdom to know what to do in those tough situations, but if you truly love your people and are wanting the best for your people and are faithful to this word, there's only one thing you and I have to fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If the only thing we fear is displeasing the Lord, brothers, I don't know, it's easier for me to preach than to live out, but I'll just tell you this. uh, If the only thing we fear is displeasing the Lord, there is nothing else in this world to fear. Again, it's not easy. I mean, I look at when Jesus proclaimed truth, few people embraced it. When he went to the cross, he went alone. We follow a Lord who went to a cross and was crucified, and he tells us it might happen to us too. Uh, But there is a resurrection, just to let you know. (laughs) And fourth, service is a life that does make a transformational difference in people's lives and in this world. The difference that Christ makes is not by coercion, but by his example. It's an example of love. You know, the best definition I've ever heard a biblical, agape kind of love, came from Grant Osborne, one of my teachers back at Trinity. He called it self-sacrificial giving. It's the kind of love that Jesus could actually command to sacrifice yourself to give to those you love. So so love calls for service to others. So i got to ask you a question. Do you love your people? Sometimes we don't seem to love them much. Sometimes we just get mad at them. Um, My mom, I grew up in West Virginia. When I got off to school, we'd always get these young pastors because we had too little a church there in the hills to be able to get anybody other than a young pastor out of church. And she would always say, I would say, how's the new preacher doing? And she would say, well, he's still preaching mad at us, but someday I think he's going to start loving us. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like we want to use preaching just to prove people that they're wrong. I'll tell you, if we don't love our people, don't preach to them. You'll only do more harm than good. But if you really love your people, think about how God might use each message that he gives you in their lives to draw them closer to Christ. I, I just, When you preach to your people, you've got to long for the best for all of your people. I, I've even tried to do this. I try to think about who is the person who right now in my church is irritating me the most. And then I think, Lord, do I love that person enough to pray that this message will not just correct them and put them in their place, but actually be used to bless them and to guide their lives. I tell you, when you, your people know that you love them, when they know that you love Jesus, when you know they know you were trying to be faithful to his word in your preaching, then even the most cranky and inflexible people you know sometimes have their hearts warmed, because this is the kind of leadership that changed the world and changed our lives. It's the service of Jesus. Isn't that what has brought us here together, my brothers and sisters? Isn't it the fact that Jesus actually did what he called us to do, giving his life on our behalf that brought us here? How did his service change our lives and give us a message to take through the world. It was not through human might. It was not through aggressiveness. It was not through superior argumentation. It wasn't even through having an Asbury degree. It was through a cross. A man on a cross coerces no one and manipulates no one. A man from a cross can only invite people. To believe in him and to follow him and to hear him say, I'm doing this so that you might be cleansed, that you might be forgiven. And as the Father sent me to serve you, I send you. It's to that kind of life of service that I call you in your preaching. You know that those who are regarded as leaders in this world use their power to lord things over their people. And the bosses in this world exercise clout over their people for their own advantage. Not so with you. Not so with you. For in this paradoxical topography, that is the kingdom of God, the way up is down and it will be to his glory.